Verge podcast with Real Lit. Neil, we've got Samantha Dell Strasser on the podcast today. For listeners who are not familiar with Samantha, who is she? I am thrilled to invite Samantha to the show today. She is the chief scientific officer and co-founder of Pepper Bio. Uh, before Pepper, she was a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow, a Churchill scholar, a Goldwater scholar. She pioneered uh, various omics-related analysis and approaches in electrical engineering and computational science uh, at MIT. Um, so she has a, a wealth of, uh, of, of knowledge that she brings to, to Pepper. Uh, Pepper uh, describes themselves as the world's first transomics drug discovery company. So uh, they use a stack of proprietary transomics data and analytics to identify promising first-in-class therapies, rediscover new uses for existing therapies. Um, they also talk a little bit about uh, being able to rescue drugs that have uh, maybe failed uh, in their own development path. And so what does all that mean? Well, to me, in very basic terms, that means they're leveraging a, a stack of, of technology and data in an attempt to try to improve the probability of successfully developing a new drug. Um, as, as frequent listeners of the show know, that's a common theme we talk about. Um, and I'll just give a couple of data points about why it's a common theme that we talk about, because I think this is really important, right? The, the cost of developing a new therapy, uh, I think it's currently estimated at about $2.6 billion, right? That includes the cost of not only developing that approved therapy, but all the drugs that failed along the way. The success rate of developing a drug going from preclinical to FDA approval is somewhere in the single digits. You know, I've seen stats ranging anywhere from sort of like five to nine percent range, but not not very good. So if a company like Pepper can move the needle even by a percentage point or two, right, that has a tremendous impact on the timelines, on the the value creation and ultimately on, on patient lives at the end of the day. So I'm really excited to talk to Pepper about uh, the, the, the stack of technology that they're implementing to try to improve drug development. We're seeing drug discovery more and more becoming a data science. As you look at the landscape of companies bringing various data streams and AI into the drug discovery process, where does Pepper sit? How unique is what it's doing? Yeah, so that's really what I'm excited to talk to Samantha about. What, what are the inputs of their platform? What are the outputs? What are the types of data that they're analyzing? How are they going about building up? What is common these days for these types of tech bio companies is this, this data moat. So um, um, Samantha has described you know, what they're doing is, as analogous to the, the traffic navigation app Waze. And, and I love that. So I'm excited for her to talk a little bit about that. But you know, the, the sort of the AI or machine learning being applied to drug development, drug discovery, right? It's sort of very buzzy um, these days. But I think there's, there's, there's a lot of there there that I'm excited to, to dig into uh, with Samantha and particularly around this, this notion of this transomics sort of platform that they've built. And I, I, I think, you know, that, that, that is their sort of differentiator. So like, what, what does that mean? What are the types of data sets that they're collecting? How are they analyzing that? And how is that leading to better informed drug discovery and development efforts? Well, if you're ready, let's do it, Danny. Hi, Samantha. I'd like to say a big thank you for joining us on the show today. 
Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So Samantha, today we are going to explore how new technological advances, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, are bringing about cures to diseases that we've previously thought to be incurable. And this is a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart and something that, uh, that I really love to discuss. As most of our listeners on the show know, you know, one of our major focuses at BioVerge is this notion of bringing science fiction to life. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your experiences and what you're working on at Pepper Bio. Uh, before we jump into some of the more technical parts of the discussion, if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love to start on a more personal note and talk about the experience you had with your father's illness and how that has influenced your career. Would you be open to discussing uh, that, that experience? Of course, most certainly. And it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart that really I mean, has, has been a huge driver to the impact that I've really focused on for my career and specifically for Pepper itself as it's been growing. Um, so just to kind of round out and to color in the story some um, so I grew up in a, a small town in central Wisconsin, was an only child in a, in a close-knit family of three. Um, so my mom, my dad, and myself were really a, a tight group. And so it was something that, you know, when I learned in grad school that my father had frontal temporal dementia was a really, frankly, in many ways, earth-shattering aspect for my family. We had never heard of the disease. And we quickly went into our usual problem-solving mode, right? We went, okay, we're going to find treatments. We're going to talk to doctors. We, you know, were optimistic on the onset, to be completely honest, and was the first experience that I, myself and my family really had with the reality of many diseases, that there just simply aren't treatments. We went to some of the best hospitals in the country and kept finding the same narrative, that like with many neurodegenerative diseases, they could track the disease, they could do imaging, but there wasn't an option. And so that for me really drove the problem I wanted to solve. I had loved for years science and, and the, the work that I was doing, but just how much that feeling of knowing how much your world stops when there are no treatment options really led me to see that that's where I wanted to make my impact. And so in the work that I had done during graduate school and the work that we're doing now at Pepper was really focused on that and facet of how can we ensure that it's impactful to reach a person, a human, a patient at the end of the day. Um, and so with starting Pepper Bio, that's been central for both myself and my co-founder. Um, unfortunately, he also had had experiences within areas that were diseases had no options. And it's really been a facet for us that's the foundation to our goal of treating the untreatable. And Samantha, th thank you for sharing that very personal story. And I think like so many entrepreneurs in our field, I, I get this almost overwhelming sense of how deeply personal and meaningful your work is to you and, and, and yeah. the mission um, that, that you're pursuing at, at Pepper and, and before Pepper. Um, and and I, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but but I will for a moment. So, so bear with me. <laughs> That's okay. Go for it. <laughs> I, so I, I just finished rereading uh, a wonderful book uh, called A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think I, I probably read it for the first time in, in college, but uh, you know, long story short, he talks about his experience being in, I think, several concentration camps during the Holocaust and, and even during the worst you know, situation imaginable for human beings or one of the worst situations imaginable, right? Some prisoners were still able to find meaning or a sense of purpose in their life. And so, you know, as I think about tying this back to our discussion, right, as an investor, when I'm looking to invest in a new company, 
a new entrepreneur, a new team, right? One of the characteristics that I always look for is this idea of grit, right? Passion and perseverance. And so another way to think about that is this, through, through this idea of, of purpose, right? Do you drive yeah. a sense of purpose from the work that you do? And I think, you know, your story certainly highlights, you know, that that is a, a critical component of your day-to-day -day work. And, and I think that we see that oftentimes in, in the field that we're in. So um, oh. I think, Absolutely. I, I, and I think that it's critical. So, so thank you for sharing that story. And just, I guess, getting back to your story, um, how do you see, you know, th that, that experience that you went through with your father's illness, you know, directly influencing the work that you're doing today at Pepper? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it all comes down to, I think, you know, when we're making a decision within, within Pepper and for you know, the work that we do, it comes to asking, will, will this impact a patient at the end of the day, if we're choosing a, say a therapeutic area to focus on, it's focus on impact. It's a focus on can we make a tangible leap forward in this space to, to drive towards that end clinical impact? Will our, the science and the experiments that we're doing inform a decision that will be adopted clinically? I mean, I think that's something that definitely is a common thread in all of our discussions is the patient impact side. And that, again, you know, facet personally of seeing you know, that part really drove that home. And for a lot of our team, I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned the grit aspect. That's why uh, that's why we've all really come to the medical space of seeing the need and wanting to help people at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a stark reminder of, you know, wh why we all do what we're doing, right? There's a patient yeah. at the end of the road and, yeah. you know, I, I don't need to remind you, but at some point mm -hmm. in our lives, we're all patients. Um, yeah, so. it's very true. It's oh. a very central to the human condition in many ways. And I think a lot can come from, you mentioned the grit facet for the book you read of humanity. Sometimes it's that that pressure that really drives a lot of innovation and change in, in growth and humanity. Absolutely. So. I couldn't agree more. So as as I think about and, and look at the way drug discovery is conducted today, what you're doing at Pepper is uh, is is slightly different. Um, and you have an approach that is focused on, I believe, what you call transomics and in particular Correct phosphoproteomics. Before we dive into the nuances of what those particular terms mean, which I, I do want to make sure that we, we describe for our audience, um, let, let's make sure we're on the same page and start with what's wrong with the drug discovery process uh, today. This is a superb question and one we talk about a lot at Pepper, because if we think about, you know, people often talk about pharma as being this super expensive industry, right? Like how much does it cost to make a drug is astronomical in the billions. But let's, if we really think about the problem, it really comes to flipping one's perspective and less about the, the sheer cost itself, but comes to why is it so expensive? Why is it so expensive? Why do we not have the, the breadth of treatments that we'd like to have for many diseases. And if we break this down, a lot of it comes down to simply the probability of success of a given drug. I mean, it's a, it's a stark number being, you know, say around 3% is an estimate that's usually given. And it really comes down to biology is really hard. And we have a problem in the industry of how bringing the right information to the table at each step and seeing, are we really bringing in the, the most recent advances to do so? And so to, to overcome that challenge of that probability of success at each stage really comes to, to the breadth of technologies that can really start to improve our decision-making at each step. And this can stem from, you know, in, in drug discovery, the first step is usually finding a target, what to go after to treat the disease. And so that's the first foundation 
to really make sure that that starting point that Bucker one is going after is correct. And so the more at each step, either finding the target, the next step of finding the drug to, to best often inhibit that target um, is a really key facet at each stage to having the true disease complexity at every step that leads towards a high probability of success along the way, which can lead us not only to having more treatments, it can also lead to more effective treatments with lower toxicities. Um, that's something that for us at Pepper is really key that when we talk about treatment, for us that really means that when someone goes to, to the doctor, right, and they're diagnosed, that they have first an, an option to begin with and an option that will be effective for them. That one of the problems also in the industry stems from some treatments just not working for a fraction of patients. And so it again comes circles back to that same having the right, you know, early definition of a disease to have that correct probability of success at each step along the way. Yeah, and I, I think that's critical. And and uh, Samantha, you alluded to some of the the, the numbers here, but uh, yeah. just to give our audience some context, you know, I, I think the the latest um, uh, data points to about you know from. Uh, costing about $2.6 billion to successfully mm -hmm. develop a new therapy. And of course that includes not only that drug, but all the failures along the way. Exactly. Um, and you threw out the number of about 3% for, you know, probability of success rate. And I've heard, you know, 3% up to about, you know, nine or 10%. So it sort of varies depending on what stage of development you're talking about. But regardless, you know, single digits, very low probabilities of success. So then it sounds like the real focus of, of Pepper and your platform is really trying to increase the probability of successfully taking drugs through each stage of, of development with, it sounds like a particular focus on the earliest stages. I think this would be a, a nice time to circle back to my uh, prior question about this idea of transomics and phosphoproteomics as part of your platform. What, what, what do those terms mean? You can describe them to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess just to, to also to, to comment on the, you know, the facet of helping at every stage that you had mentioned, I want to just to mention that it is from early in, in preclinical, but through to to the clinical stages. It's something that we're excited to to bring breadth of understanding and increasing that probability of success, even down to the level of what patient do we give this drug to. Um, so it's something that with those you know terms I'll next delve into is a really central part to the platform facet of our technology. And transomics and phosphoproteomics, yes, two rather rather big words in terms of just syllables themselves. And it's, I'll start with transomics, as I think that's, you know, we you know, talk a lot about how we're the world's first transomics company. And what we mean by that is it's a fully integrated, comprehensive view of biology that really tells you the context of uh, what's happening at a systems level within a disease system or within a drug. And so this transomic approach, it integrates across a range of omics data types. So many folks are familiar with, with genomics and we had you know, over 20 years ago, the first sequencing of the human genome, phenomenal advance for, for the field and the industry. And since then, it's essentially been tracking closer and closer with data types to get towards biological function. So genomics are those underlying instructions of what can happen. There's transcriptomics, which are really kind of the next stage along that biological information path which then leads to proteomics. So a measurement of looking at proteins within a system, the molecular actors within a cell. But that's, again, still only looking at how much of a given actor is there. The last key step is really, what is that protein doing? And that's where the word phosphoproteomics comes to play. So phosphorylated proteins are a type of modified protein, specifically a phosphate group that's added on and off of that molecular actor of a protein. And it's with that 
modified protein that we drive at really understanding what that protein's function is doing. So adding these molecular groups can affect a protein shape, which then affects what it can do within a cell, what molecules it can bind to, what effect it has on, say, if a cell lives or a cell dies. So it's something that that molecular impact of understanding that functional state through looking at the data type of phosphoproteomics unlocks this whole new new set of understanding of really what is happening in a disease or when a drug is applied. Uh, we often liken it to, to the ways for drug discovery by bringing in this type of approach. And that what that means is we're essentially taking the biological equivalent of real-time traffic data. Um, and if you think about it, many of us have, you know, over time been familiar with the level of, you know, we used to have big paper maps that gave instructions of where roads were, but say Waze itself was a huge advance in the tech space for how we navigate around. And that now by having context of where cars are on the road, where traffic jams are, this much more kind of systems level facet of what's going on and a dynamic facet. It's the same dynamic facet that we through using transomics and phosphoproteomics can understand in biology to navigate towards the, the most effective decision and most effective drug down the line for, for a patient. And I, I love that analogy, um, uh, you know, linking it to, to sort of the, the, the Waze app. And, uh, you know, just like Waze, there, there's a community aspect to that technology. If I understand correctly, there's a community aspect to your technology as well. The more it's used, the more it can do, in other words. How can you talk a little bit about that, uh, how customers use the platform and its capabilities? Absolutely. So I guess, I mean, first, just a, a point of note, our, you know, our collaborations are a huge aspect of, of what we do. Um, and in building our understanding of, of biology as a whole. I mean, that's something that we see, you know, um, in our own technology and, and for, for the field itself. And so for us, the community aspect comes down to the data that we generate. Um, so we, in working um, on our own programs or in, in partnerships with pharma, that data that we, we glean from particular studies only works to fuel and further improve um, our, our platform's understanding itself. That feedback loop that we've actually in some sense, you know, we've, we've seen in the tech industry that we're now migrating over into this kind of tech bio space of a feedback loop that brings together understanding, um, really enables, you know, improving our, our platform technology over time. I want to come back to this notion of, of data because I think this is really critical in this concept of building a data moat. Because I think you're right. I think this is relatively novel um, and it's a playbook that a lot of the, as you said, tech bio companies are using. Before we get to that, though, I, I want to drill down into a little bit of the nuances of, of the platform itself. And specifically, what, what types of, of data sort of does the platform draw from? How is it, how is it used? What are you analyzing? Right, so walk me through just some of the details in terms of the inputs and outputs of, of, of the platform. Yeah. Um, so first, just in terms of the I mean, for inputs and outputs, um, this kind of a you know crisp answer there is fundamentally our input is this transomic data of genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and then fossil proteomics stack and modified protein data. And it's through that data that we're able to to analyze to provide what we call a transomic signature, which really gives this context of understanding of the disease or the drug of interest of functional changes within a system to to identify the you know, impact of disease to drive after better targets, or the other end of looking at, you know, what is the drug doing to best characterize, say, even on and off of off target effects of the drug. But kind of collectively, what does that mean, right? I think it's important to take a step back for a minute and think about, you know, why we're bringing in these data types and what this approach 
solves for the industry in terms of key problems for the platform itself. So if we think about, you know, the industry itself, we, we spent a lot of time talking with um, folks in pharma and learned of kind of what they were most hungry for, right? Like what are, you know, kind of going after the scientific side is what are they really looking for? What are the big gaps? And that's where there were really three pillars that are that we found were, were needed. And this is where the technology that I've been building uh, since my time in grad school, we really started to see, you know, a pattern of what the need was and that we were able to, to go after solving with this technology. And so those pillars, uh, the three are functional, global and causal. And so what I mean by that is functional brings us to you know, the bringing in of this more, the data types that are closest to an end biological response. So this is where that phosphoproteomics data layer comes to play. And so by integrating this data itself, it brings in a more function, the most functional understanding, frankly, of the biotech stack with integrating then still the context of what we see with genomic, transcriptomics, and proteomics to capture that full complexity of a biological system. The second one that I mentioned is global. And so this is in, in many ways, um, it's, it's in some ways, I think a very clear choice once described of it's wanting to look at the entire breadth of all the signaling pathways that we can measure. Historically in, in the field, folks would might look at, say they often talk about, you know, they have a favorite pathway, right? Which historically for how science just you know, began, that makes sense in terms of where techniques started. But now we're at a point in the industry where we can measure you know, hundreds and or thousands and tens of thousands of analytes, which this is where I get really excited on the technical side because it's a phenomenal point of now this insight we have into how a biological system functions. And so by on our approach of ensuring everything we do is, is global in its measurement, it's unbiased, keeps the system-wide perspectives so we don't miss something key that might be in a, in a pathway that hadn't been considered previously. And then lastly is this, this aspect of, of being bringing, driving towards causality. And so, you know, folks would often talk about how, you know, a challenge historically in the field would say they'd look at individual measurements. They'd, you know, look at what significantly changed and have a list of maybe, you know, 50 to 100 interesting things to follow up on, but not a clear linking of this data together into a singular analysis. And so what we're driving for in our own approach is now in transomics, linking together these data types to really drive towards the understanding that's closer to causality, not just say a correlation of, of the analytes themselves. And, and Samantha, I always like concrete examples. How, how are you using the technology today? I mean, I think all the things that you just went through are, 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 are really amazing, right? And I think there's definitely a long-term play there, particularly around you know, the generation of, of that, that, that data and mm -hmm. all the insights that you can glean from that data that you're collecting over time. But you mentioned a partner or a couple of customers that you're working with today. How are you using the techno technology uh, with them or on your own today? Are you using it more in the preclinical setting, in the clinical setting? What types of um, diseases or therapeutic areas are you currently focused on uh, as well? Yes, absolutely. So in terms of where it's being used today, it's both for our own internal programs as well as with partners. Uh, and in both scenarios, it's understanding drivers of disease and, and better characterizing drug candidates themselves. So to, to kind of you know, add some specificity on each of those uh, internally, this is with actually three pipeline programs um, that we're building out, two of which are actually partnered with Dean Felcher's lab at Stanford. And so we're here using our technology to identify novel targets um, within oncology. Um, and so we're building out in uh, MIC-driven um, cancers of um, lymphoma um, and liver, as well as the third program being within 
um, EGFR mutant non-smell lung cancer. Uh, in parallel with those internal programs, we also have a partnership that we've done with a pharma partner. Uh, and this is actually where it's been exciting on towards a looking at a clinical stage compound. So again, showing breadth of application of our platform. And so with this partner, they came to us seeking additional depth of understanding of a clinical stage drug that they were working with and wanted to, to have a broader context of the mechanism of action to enable both understanding better what they've seen in the clinic and to consider indication expansion opportunities. So we with, worked with them um, to collect data on samples, um, the in vivo samples that were treated with their drug of interest. We carry out our transomic analysis and we're through the transomic signatures we created from those that data itself. It was a beautiful example of one, it aligned with what was already understood about this clinical stage compound. It was frankly fairly well studied to date. But it's provided with that the context again of this global functional and causal view, new understanding above and beyond what they had known. And so this kind of new potential mechanism of action that they had yet to have identified provided context to really seeing new indications that they could go after. So I, th I think this is a good segue into uh, a discussion around your, your business model. Um, you, you know, you, you had mentioned this idea of, of you know, tech bio, um, sort of, you know, applying the, the technology playbook to, you know, you know, biotech in general. How do you tend to think about Pepper Bio? It sounds like you have some, some you know, customers, you have some partnerships in terms of helping others uh, glean more insights into their uh, pipeline compounds. Sounds like you are working on developing your own pipeline of drug candidates. How do you think about the business model for, for Pepper? Pepper is, is it to be a you know a, a drug developer on its own? Is it to really have a, a full stack of a variety of different partnerships? Is it some combination thereof? Yes, no, it's actually it is a combination thereof. And so we have a hybrid business model that actually focuses on both our internal pipeline. And so this is as I mentioned, we're we're focusing in oncology, um, where we have three drug programs. Um, and that's in parallel then with our business model that um, is partnerships with pharma. And this latter stems from the fact that we have a unique ability to support pharma's key questions and challenges um, from the technology that we're already, already developing in-house. And so this has actually been the beauty of a, a platform technology um, where with this technology, we can continuously pump out new, new insights, new drugs for our own internal programs while in parallel applying that same approach two questions that folks have within pharma. And so from that, it's something that again, we can we can really contribute in, in two ways to, to bringing forth new opportunities for patients. And, and Samantha, I always like to ask this question. You, so you, you came from academia, um, right? You're, you're now chief scientific officer at, at Pepper. I mean, how is, is what you're doing at Pepper um, similar or different than the way that you worked in, in academia? What is different? So I think it stems from really what what questions are asked to some extent and what the end application is to an extent. So I think there's, you know, in both scenarios, there's a really big push towards, you know, advancing forward new and exciting science and do, identifying new concepts within biology that can lead towards helping patients. But I think in I found for at Pepper, we have a more time sensitive focus on finding options for treatments that can have an impact in a shorter time scale, I think has been a really key facet. 
and some I think just stems from I mean academia versus a startup um, there's you know somewhat different you know methods of of how things are translated at the end of the day in terms of some of those goals and that's for me how and why I was really excited to to found a company was to keep a focus on being the implementer of taking this technology and translating it to uh, the end of the day a you know service that can be provided for for patients um but i think it's you know on both sides i think there's some similarities right as scientific founder i have the you know the fortunate scenario of being able to still push forward publishing and keeping you know the same degree of scientific rigor and that's something I've liked about about the role itself is the you know maintaining the scientific side while also having a strategic angle towards building a company that can really translate that science to to reaching patients at the end of the day. Yeah, Samantha, and I, and I think that that's that's key. You know, I, I remember when I was at at SERM, right? We worked a, a lot with academic investigators and mm-hmm. uh, you know really licensing academic IP into building, you know, early stage biotech companies. And, and to my knowledge, there has never been a commercialized product that has reached patients that has not, you know, been in the hands of pharma or, or a biotech company, right? It just, it doesn't happen in, in academia. Um, well, and they're both key. I think they address different questions. It's something, there's questions you ask in academia, you wouldn't see in, in say, the industry startup side and vice versa. So it's definitely contrasting, but helpful to, to have both afoot. So. Couldn't agree more. And I think they're a, a tremendous complement to one another. Um, Absolutely. I, I want to circle back to um, the platform and maybe you could talk about the types of um, therapeutic modalities that the platform is best suited to. Are you mm-hmm. mainly focused on small molecules? Does the platform work with uh, other novel types of maybe cellular gene therapies or biologics? Absolutely. So this is actually something that's been I mean, exciting for us for opportunities as a company because we are in principle modality agnostic. It comes down at the end of the day towards we can characterize within our transomic platform um, modalities, everything from small molecule to RNAi. There's a range of different um, modalities that we can go after. And that's partly even seen for, you know, potential partners that we meet with, even seen now for our discussions we've had about our own pipeline, that there's a lot of opportunity that exists that we can contribute to across the industry. Now, I will say one thing that, you know, we have, you know, kind of honed in on within our platform is, you know, the potential for the therapeutic area itself. And so that's where we've, you know, identified, you know, the broad areas of oncology where our internal programs are focused, as well as inflammatory and neurodegenerative. And so that stems from really what's already been identified of the role of phosphorylation in the, you know, the, the genesis of those diseases themselves. And so for kind of us, really that facet of therapeutic area has been more what's been focusing kind of how we identify um, potential in our own programs as well as potential partners. And so Matt, I, I want to circle back and, and dig in a little more on this notion of what it means to be a tech bio company. I think this mm-hmm. is a question I always love to ask folks and, and get different perspectives. What does what is, what is sort of being tech bio mean to you? Tech bio is a phrase that I've loved the adoption for because it's, it really emphasizes, I think, the best of both worlds of bringing in a, you know, a tech perspective, right, of taking large amounts of data, really having a very um, more kind of, applic- of a data focused kind of start that then drives towards looking at applications to questions in biology. I think it flips a perspective in an industry 
that had a similar pattern over the last you know, several several decades in many ways of how drugs are looked at. And so tech bio, I think, starts to say, okay, let's you know, let's look take a different approach towards going after identifying treatments, and let's take all of these new technologies from AI to I mean machine learning to looking at a you know, flipping the question of how we go about identifying new drugs and treatments. I think it also brings a lot of cultural facets from the tech industry that can be beneficial um, of bringing new insights to, to the drug discovery industry. You know, that's something we've seen in growing our team as well is bringing in perspectives that start to bring, you know, what's been really effective from even just the, the tech industry itself over the last 10 years. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a critical point as well. So, I mean, you mentioned the the the, the technology aspect mm -hmm. of it, but I think the the cross disciplinary teams is also a, a critical aspect, right? And and that that cultural shift really within within the the biotech landscape and what it means to develop drugs. Um, and I and I think that's often not talked about enough, but I think that that cultural aspect is super important here. Um, and, you know, culture plays a key role in, in building a, a sustainable and su successful company. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you have any comments around the, the sort of the, the culture that you're looking to build at, at Pepper, but I always find it useful to talk about some of the more you know, qualitative aspects as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something when my, so my co-founder and I, we go back oh, almost over 10 years now. So we've talked a lot about, you know, what really we wanted to grow as a company, the type of team we want to, you know, to build around us and the type of culture that that, you know, goes along with that. And for us, a lot of that, I think, stems from, uh, you know, a really curious data-driven group of people. Um, I think that's something that was what, um, you know, for my co-founder and I, when we first started to, to get to know each other even back, this was back when we were an undergrad that we first um, met during our time at Northwestern. And, we saw early on just our own synergy of seeing new perspectives come to coming towards a common goal. And so that's something of having that common vision, but coming at it from different perspectives and angles has been part of how we've grown the team itself and wanting to keep that thread to, to challenge ourselves, to kind of push forward in building something that's broader than what we could do independently. Yeah, and, and I love that. And that actually just brought up sort of a tangential question for me. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I want to circle back to sort of the business model um, and in particular the, the, the IP strategy here, right? So obviously you're developing, you know, your own therapeutic candidates. There's IP mm -hmm. around that, whether it's, um, you know, composition of matter, method of use. Do you also think about having IP for, for the data or for the platform it, itself? Yes, on um, both in the context, I'd say, I mean, for the for the data, we do have proprietary data in-house. So that is something that is our own. We've talked about the data moat some. Um, and then the platform itself, as that grows um, and that develops further, that is also something that um, that is protectable as well. And so there's, I guess, and that's some kind of a three-pronged strategy from the data itself to the platform as well as the, the assets themselves. Yep. And and if if I remember my timeline correctly, you emerged from stealth sort of in the in the fall of, of last year uh, with support Correct. from uh, NFX uh, as 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 a, as a venture firm here in, in the Bay Area. Um, yes. What, what what are your plans going forward um, in terms of you know either either financing or sort of you know growing the business? In in other words, like where where would you see yourself, let's say, in the next two to three years? Absolutely. So. 
In the next two to three years, I mean, our, one of our big pushes is our own internal pipeline itself. Um, so building that out further um, as we also then advance the platform with both our advancements in tracking with that pipeline as well as through partnerships. And so that leads us to really, you know, driving towards that vision of having um, assets that lead us towards treating the untreatable. I think it really, again, drives towards that end goal. Um, but to, to build around really how, you know, how we're doing about that a bit and kind of the, you know, the realm of where we where we started. You mentioned um, NFX as the investor that we had in our pre-seed round. Um, for us, they've been, you know, one of, we've been thrilled with that partnership. It's one of the things that we've been really excited about that's come together in just the last year now. Um, and that a lot came from, you know, the alignment of really them knowing and us aligning on the platform capability to to optimize for patient impact and to be able to go after really complex diseases. And so in within since that investment in the last year, so kind of where we've you know gone, um, we've accomplished a lot. It's been a it's been a phenomenal year in the sense of both growing the teams to five full-time team members, six phenomenal advisors, um, and initiating those three internal pipeline programs along with the partnerships that I've mentioned. So working with Dean Felcher's lab at Stanford, going after unraveling MIC-driven cancers, um, as well as partnerships with, with Pharma as well. Um, and so this, you know, to, to moving forward, it's been really exciting just to see the sheer demand for approaches like ours, which has really launched that aim that I've mentioned of our ambition of, you know, expanding our program in those next couple of years to have um, assets of our own that we really are moving forward and that's, you know, from what we've seen of the need from both pharma as well as investors. They've seen the draw of a product engine to really provide, you know, continually kind of building forward these new insights um, in their own right. Now, Samantha, I think we could probably talk for the next two days straight about <laughs> some of these topics, but I, I want to be yeah. cognizant of your time. Uh, I, I want to wish you the, the best of luck in your endeavors at, at Pepper, you know, if, if the company is successful and even moving the probability of successfully developing drugs, you know, by, by a, a few percentage points, right. That has a huge mm -hmm. impact um, not only on patients, but creates a tremendous amount of value uh, along the way as well. So thank you so much for, for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate your time and a great discussion. Thank you as well, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the, the conversation. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a really great discussion with Samantha. I mean, I, I think we hit a lot of these sort of key points that I was hoping to dive into around the sort of the, the details and the nuances of what what is what does transomics mean exactly, right? What does you know they they talk about this idea of phosphoproteomics? So what, what is that? How are they utilizing those types of data sets to better inform uh, drug development, either in their own pipeline or for their pharma partners? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate the, 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 the uh, discussion and, and also around the notion of what it means to Samantha to be a, a tech bio company. We've long seen technologies enter drug discovery that are supposed to improve, accelerate, reduce the cost of drug discovery, although every indication is that continues to rise. How long do you think it'll take to see technologies like Peppers provide cost benefits? Well, that's the billion-dollar question, Danny. Uh, if, if only oh, I had a two point six billion dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two point six billion dollar question. Um, you know, it, it's hard to say. What I will say is that there has been a tremendous amount of funding going into companies uh, that are pursuing this type of you know relatively novel drug development approach. 
um, that are applying these pretty sophisticated, you know, computer-based models, you know, computational biology uh, that incorporates AI or machine learning or, or whatever, whatever you know, buzzword you want to throw in there into into the process. It is still relatively young, so you know, it's it's hard to say when some of these efforts are going to bear fruit. But just judging by the sheer number of companies that are are pursuing this pathway, the amount of capital. Uh, and 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 brilliant people that are working on this problem. I I think it's a matter of uh, when and not if. Um, and you know we we've seen sort of the, the first wave of some of these companies are, are now public companies. You know some of the initial you know products that they came up with as sort of you know uh, you know lead compounds are now entering the clinic or are in the clinic. So uh, we'll see how they perform. So it's still you know relatively in its infancy, but I think the future is, is very bright. Pepper talks about producing actionable insights others miss. As we're able to dive deeper into the complexity of biology, do you think there's a risk of being lost in the data? Do you have confidence in the ability of AI to deal with the complexity and separate meaningful from non-meaningful data? Uh, yeah, I mean, another really good question, Danny. I mean, I think there's a lot that you know, sophisticated you know, computers are very good at doing that people are not necessarily so good at doing. And that, that is, that is crunching the large data sets right now. Obviously the computers are only as good as the people who program them at this point. Right. But I think, you know, having sort of the, 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 the human knowledge base and the human element being paired with a powerful computer that can more readily crunch the large sets of data, I think is the evolution of where we're going in general, you know, not just in in the biotech world and drug discovery and drug development, but I think you, I think I would argue you could apply that across industries and across disciplines. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think there is going to be a lot of noise. Um, there's going to be a lot of trial and error, but I, I do see this as a as a viable pathway to improving the efficacy and improving the probability of of successfully developing novel drugs. And and don't forget. You know, we, we don't necessarily we don't need to go from, you know, a, a nine or 10 percent success rate to 90 percent. If we, we go from, you know, whatever, nine or 10 percent to 12 percent to 15 percent. I mean, e even those incremental changes have a huge net positive benefit, both in both in terms of value creation, but also in terms of patient impact. Companies with compelling platforms like Peppers often set out with a, a dual business model to both be a service provider and, and also build its own pipeline. Often though, they end up just building their own pipeline because it becomes a more compelling way to, to realize value. There's been some exceptions to that, but they're very few. What, what do you think Pepper will need to do to be successful with this type of dual business model? Yeah, I'm, I, I think you're exactly right, Danny. I mean, I think there's a lot of businesses emerge and they start out in this sort of the partnership model um, and, and in some cases that that can work well in terms of pursuing non-core therapeutic areas or non-core indications uh, into the future. But at some point, I think it, it oftentimes can become competitive between the company's internal pipeline and the pipeline of their partners. And then at the end of the day, it all comes down to resources and, and focus. Right. So you, you need to focus your, your your capital and your resources and your efforts on what you think will yield the highest value for your business. Uh, for your shareholders and what will have the highest probability of, 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 you know, successfully getting something to the market. 
And so, you know, if you look at things on a, you know, a risk adjusted return basis, that is often developing your own therapies, right? Cause that, that has the highest risk, but also has the highest reward. And on a, you know, risk adjusted NPV basis, you know, that is often the better path. Not always, but often is the better path. And so I think that's why we often see companies, uh, pursue, pursue that direction. Uh, that being said, you know, there's, you know, it's commonplace for biotech companies to have their own therapeutic pipeline and then partner a bunch of, you know, their own products or have partnerships around other companies' products as part of their pipeline uh, as well. And again, I mean, and that's typically around, you know, non-core therapeutic areas or non-core indications. Um, and it's also just a way to, to, number one, help sort of de-risk what they're doing to some degree and sharing the resources of, of uh, you know, each other's core strengths um, and, and, and oftentimes leverage some of the resources of, of a larger company. Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.